Lord, we do come to you today desiring to get a glimpse of you and your will and your plan from your word. We trust in it, knowing that it is your revelation that you've given to us. We trust in its inspiration and inerrancy, and we desire to give it that respect that it deserves and be reminded of the truths that you desire us to know. So as we look into your revelation that we might have clarity, clarity of thought, our minds may be focused, that we may set apart anything that might distract us from clearly seeing and understanding what you've revealed. If there be sin, may we confess it, that we may be in fellowship with you and that we may maximize our benefit from what you have in your word. So we commit this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been stressing through the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, the concept of knowing and understanding and focusing on reality. The Bible gives us a picture of what is real. Now, one thing that is real that we can't see, we don't detect it, we don't sense it, There's an entire spiritual realm that a lot of people even deny. But in that spiritual realm, there are realities that take place. God is doing things unseen that we can't detect. And a lot of what Scripture teaches concerning you and I involve that spiritual realm. So we get distracted by the things that we do see, the things that we do encounter, and things that do impinge on us. And in that distraction, we lose sight of some of reality around us, particularly things relating to the spirit realm. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul is emphasizing the reality of who we are. What is our true identity in Christ? But not only our true identity in Christ, but he's contrasting that with the true identity of the unbeliever. And the big obstacle that we have in sharing spiritual truths with an unbeliever is they have no concept of true reality in relationship to who they are, their true identity. They do not realize that they are dead spiritually, that they are on a path of deadness that ultimately ends in a second death. All of that is foreign to the unbelieving mind. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this world has blinded them, so they're unaware. So the key to Christian living, the key to sanctification, that's what this section is dealing with, is focusing and remaining in reality. In other words, focusing in what God has revealed. Some of these things we don't see, we don't detect. In fact, apart from revelation, we don't even know about them. Well, in the passage that we're going to look at, it deals with a reality that we're reminded again of knowing certain things. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between the passage that we're going to look at today, 15 through 18. Now we have to go back and finish 14. There's a few things that I didn't get to. But once again, in verse 16, when we get to verse 16, do you not know, very similar to what he started the whole chapter with, do you not know certain things? And in verse 6, knowing this, verse 9, knowing that or knowing these things, the emphasis of chapter 6 is perceiving, understanding, focusing on things that you can't see but are real because God has declared them. Real things in terms of a relationship, in terms of what God has done in creating us as new creatures, new realities, new things that relate to our new identity. And it's key that we focus on these things because if we understand who we are, that is the foundation that we are able to respond. And whether we recognize it or not, all of the actions that come out of us, all of the attitudes, all of the perceptions of reality come from that basic understanding. 
So if we don't have that, we don't have a biblical basis, then we live out what is normal and natural to the old dead <clears throat> self. We don't think it's dead. The Bible declares it dead. So Paul is dealing with the church at Rome and believers there, and because they're not much different than us, relates to us as well. So we're talking about sanctification. That's the broad topic, 6 through 8. Chapter 6 deals with the principles. That's why it emphasizes knowing. And we looked at the passage last time that deals with applying it, if you will, believing it, and then appropriating it. So verses 1 through 14 is that section, identification with Christ. That's the key idea. And this identification has lots of implications that we've been looking at. So he explains the doctrine, 6, 1 through 10. We're to believe that idea, that concept of unity in Christ. That's verse 11. Reckon it to be true or consider it to be reality because it is, and then we appropriate this new identity, 12 through 14. Now, this is so important, this little sub-paragraph, if you will, within verses 1 through 14, that let me kind of remind you of what we had in that passage. Remember we had the beginnings in verse 11 of imperatives, Greek imperatives. Now, when you have an imperative, whether it's whatever language, you can equate that with a command. In other words, it's calling us to do something or to respond in certain ways. Everything up to this point has been in the Greek indicative mood. Now, we don't think in English in terms of mood, but statements of fact. In other words, looking at what is reality, what are the truths, what is, in fact, the doctrine that is being proclaimed. That's why he emphasizes knowing in verses 1 through 10, three times, or do you not know, and then two positives. And then in verse 11, we have the first command, or you might say imperative, and it's a encouragement to believe. And then we have three other ones, and possibly five in 12 through 14. So let me just remind you of what we have in 12 through 13. These are the main verbs of the three independent clauses that begin in verse 12, therefore, and then you don't get to the period to get to the end there, God, at the end of verse 13. And you remember, just grammatically, the essence of what is being communicated is the way language works. The main subject and the verb give you the main idea, and in this case we have three subjects Three verbs. Subject is the same. Subject is assumed, particularly in a command that it's directed to whoever the audience is. So the subject of all is you. Then the main verbs are commands or imperatives. Two of them are in the negative. Do not let sin reign. In other words, he's talked about this reign of sin and death. That's our old identity. Don't let it rule like a king. The second main verb in verse 13, do not, another negative, do not go on presenting something. And the idea that we developed there, we looked at that word in not too much detail, but I gave you some usages of it. It has the idea of yielding or the idea of presenting something. It can even be used in the sense of presenting an offering on an altar in a literal way, or to be alongside of something or be with something. And in this case, don't present the members of your body alongside of sin or with sin or present them to or yield to sin. So do not do that. And the emphasis there is now that we know the old identity, there are a lot of areas, and it's different for each one of us, different inclinations of that old self that we've been developing in this passage as well. That old nature. Some of us have weaknesses in different areas. Don't present yourself in those situations where you are vulnerable. I think that's the essence of what he's getting at here. Don't make those areas available again because of our inclinations, and it'll vary from person to person. 
And there's many areas that we could talk about, but we're just reviewing here. And then it's always, in Scripture, you always have the positive. In other words, the alternative. And the third imperative is to present. Same word. Don't go on presenting. Instead, present yourselves to God. So in the midst of temptation, in the midst of vulnerability, in the midst of circumstances, that's when we have to consciously remind ourselves, I have a new identity, my identity is related to God, now I want to, rather than yielding in this area, now I need to consciously and deliberately think in terms of yielding to God, substitute something. And oftentimes the best substitute is to remind ourselves of the truths of Scripture that relate to the particular temptation or struggle or issue that we're facing at the moment. So we have these three imperatives that we appropriate the truths that we've been looking at. So present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we looked at that in some detail. Now, there's several other passages that emphasize the same idea. In other words, the idea that we have a new identity, and because of that new identity, now we have new options. Paul has been stressing we only have one option as an unbeliever. We are dominated, you might say, by sin. Sin reigns over the unbeliever, even though he's unconscious of it. That's reality. That's who we are. But now, in Christ, because we have a new identity, we have new options. Now we are not dominated by sin. In fact, sin and death have been broken in terms of the believer. So let's look up these things, the new identity and the new life in other passages, so that you see that Romans, obviously, is not the only passage. Now, it's put in different terms, phrased in different ways, but we're talking about the same concept, new identity and new life. Somebody look up Philippians 2, 12 to 13. David's got it. First Peter 2, Connie's got it. And First Peter 4, Dwayne's got it. And while we're doing it, These passages also speak in terms of transformation. That's what Romans 6 through 8 is dealing with. And since we're in Romans, who's got Romans 8? Maddie's got that one. Philippians 3. Nobody's blinking. There we go. Jeremy, you got 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. You got it, Dave? Therefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to wills and to do. Okay? Work out your salvation. That's what Paul is talking about here. And he's giving imperatives. In other words, this is what you do in working out that salvation. But notice, as this passage has been stressing, God is the one that has done the work. And we simply believe it. We simply trust in what God has said. We do appropriate it. In other words, we cooperate by presenting our members. And what does he say in that passage in terms of that aspect? Work out your salvation. In other words, it involves our involvement, but we're not alone. And we're going to see in Romans 8, there is power available. And read the last part of that again, verse 13. The last part of verse No, 13. Both to will and to do of his In other words, God is the one that's working to both will, and when we have a command, it's addressed to our will, command to our volition. It's an appeal to making a choice. And it's God that is involved even in the choice and to do. And that's the empowerment that we're going to see in Romans chapter 8. Okay? So, parallel passages. Another parallel passage, Peter. So we have Paul. We have Peter. First Peter 2. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. That's their identity, or our identity. A holy nation, his own special people, 
that she may proclaim the praise of God to other servants is marvelous. He once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now. So, lots of detail concerning our new identity. It's in contrast to the nation. It's in contrast to the people. Well, not contrast, but in terms of what we say, in comparison, you might say. We have a similar idea being the children of God as what the nation of Israel had in the Old Testament. In other words, we have a special standing. And in that, there are some changes, and we can proclaim that. So, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Similarly, in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Dwayne, do you have that one? Yes, sir. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh for the lust of men for the will of God. Okay, we've experienced a transformation in Christ. New identity, same thing that Romans is talking about. Relationship to sin is broken. And then a call to live according to that new identity. And then we have passages that stress the transformation process. One of them, anticipating the future. And in the context of Romans, this is the ultimate transformation that will take place. 8, 21 through 23 that the creation itself also will be set free from slavery to corruption. Even the entire creation is going to experience a transformation. That's future. It's in the process, and it will take place. Keep reading. Into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers in the child together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Notice the groaning. That's Romans 7. Romans 7, it's, it's a battle. It's a struggle. We still have the old tendency. We're in the process of transformation that ultimately is going to be completed. And Romans 8 here is giving us that completion. In other words, there's going to be glorification. God's going to complete that. Just as the Philippians passage says that uh, God has begun a work that he's going to complete. So we have a transformation. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For citizenship is in heaven, we also even wait for the same. There's our new identity. Our citizenship is not here, even though we get clouded and distracted by it. Keep going, Karen. Who will transform our lowly body that may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things self. There's the transformation. That's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 is talking about. We call it sanctification, because that's the word that Paul uses at the end of this chapter, in chapter 6. So a transformation is taking place. It's a slow process. And it won't be completed until we are glorified after we leave these bodies. As long as we are in these sinful bodies, we have the battle. That's the Romans 8 passage. And the glorious end, Jeremy, 1 Corinthians 15, 50-54. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That's the mortal body that Romans 6 is talking about, flesh and blood, and it cannot inherit. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on, for the, this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we will come about this then will come about the saying that is written, Death is followed up in victory. So we have a great hope. The mortal bodies that he's talking about here, that in fact is tempted, is in some cases even defeated, at least temporarily, there's the ultimate hope that it'll be ultimately and totally transformed. Now he's talking about resurrection, obviously, here. Talking about <laughs> rapture. 
and that's future. In the meantime, we struggle with the process. Paul describes that as sanctification. So we left off in verse 14. Let me just make a couple more comments on it, and then we'll move into 15, and we probably won't get all the way to 18. Four, kind of concluding this little sub-paragraph within the broader paragraph of 1 through 14. For sin shall not be master over you. I mentioned briefly last time that this can be taken in two ways in the Greek, as even you can take it two ways in the English. And a lot of commentators are divided on the two views. Some view it as a statement of fact. Sin shall not be master over you. In other words, as a, and it is in the indicative, in other words, as a statement of fact. And it can be taken that way. But even in English, sometimes, particularly you parents, and I used the illustration last time, you will say something in the indicative mood. And in doing that, the way you say it, it can be taken as a command. In other words, you'll tell your children, you will go to school tomorrow. Is that a statement of fact? Is that a prophetic statement? If you emphasize the you or the way you intone it in your voice, you are indicating to that child, you may not want to, but you will go to school tomorrow. This is a possibility here, and in this context, I'm more inclined to take it that way. In other words, it's another imperative, even though the grammatical structure is indicative. But an indicative can be used in that way in both English and Greek. So then it would be, uh, he would say, therefore, or do not let sin be master over you, because you are not a new model. Right, right. Yes. Okay. Yep. And that clearly makes it imperative in the English. But this is a legitimate translation because it's in the indicative in the Greek. Okay? But the Greek can be used in that way as well just as we use it in in English. So, sin shall not be master over you. And I'm inclined with the other imperatives to take it in this way. Okay? Now, you can take it the other way. In fact, most of the commentators take it the other way. And what I'd like to stress today in this passage, because this is, I think, an image that Paul is using that he carries through to the end of the rest of the, the passage, the image of... Slavery. He's using terminology that has this slavery background, you might say. So I'm going to use an image myself. The word here, master, is a word that doesn't occur frequently in the verbal form, but it occurs very abundantly in the noun form. It's the verbal form of the word Lord, or it could be translated master. And in the New Testament, a person that was under lordship, you might say, of a master, of a lord, was a person that was in subjection at different levels. And there are at least five different words in the New Testament that are used for slavery or servitude or servanthood. And the one that is used here is the one that is above the servant, and we'll get to the word slave later on, and we'll talk about it. But the first word, master, or shall not be, it's negated, shall be master, negated, shall not be master over you, is this idea of slavery, basically. Karen? So, in the New James, shall not have dominion. Dominion, yeah, that, that would, that's a good translation. And the word in the verbal form, now it only occurs seven times, but it has the idea of lording over something, dominating, as Karen's version puts it, or having a master-servant relationship with a verbal idea. David? Uh, and to follow up on dominion, it was in the verses I'm reading, Pointed thing. It is a mastery in an area where right. there's a choice there. Dominion is something that's given and can be taken. Well, the subject of it, there's no choice. 
Yeah. In other words, the domination from the master, the only choice is from the master's perspective. It can be... Wait a minute, are we just talking about the fact that your choice about which master serves? Yep, yep. Well, for the unbeliever. The whole point of everything we're talking about is we are broken. In other words, what he's going to go on for, we're not under that anymore. So don't go back to it. In other words, don't go back to your old identity. Don't submit yourself. He's just completed these commands encouraging us not going back. So maybe okay. an equally true statement would be sin shall not have mastery. Right. And if you take it in the imperative, you put it like Maddie said, don't let it master you. Okay? Now he's kind of going back to what he stated in verse 13. He's kind of summarizing 13. He doesn't mention the alternative, but he gives a reason here. Two fours. Okay? For you are not under law, but under grace. But first of all, this word to be a master, and notice the, the word, curieto, curieto. I've got the transliteration up there. And notice it's similar to what? The noun form is curias. Curias. But that's the word Lord. Very common, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in some cases, it's just a word that is used in the sense of respect. We would say sir today, or it can be used in terms of a master-slave relationship. And in terms of Jesus, it's the ultimate in lordship. But in this case, it's the verbal form. So it has the idea to lord over something, and it's obviously related to the noun, lord, same word. So he's using slave-master imagery here, and we're going to see it throughout. And this is important because of what he says later on, and we'll get to that. So just a summary of four imperatives, and all of these in the Greek text are imperative until we get to verse 14. Three of them are present imperatives, and a present imperative can be used in terms of an ongoing principle. It's a command, obviously. In other words, we continually ongoing believe these facts and we have to be reminded of them of this doctrine day by day moment by moment believe our new identity truth we have to remind ourselves because we get clouded by everything that goes on around us in the world and essentially we could say stop sinning and that's an ongoing thing it's not a one time event it's a present imperative 612 And then in 6.13, don't yield to the old nature. Kind of summarizing those verbs. In other words, don't yield or don't put yourself in a position where you're vulnerable. And then we have an aorist imperative, the alternative. And the aorist imperative is the strongest command in the Greek language. If you want a command, if you want to put a command in its strongest forms, you make it aorist. Now, the aorist loses, I think, some of its time element when it's in the imperative. It's it's not a past thing that is a once-for-all event. I think this is just as ongoing as the present imperative, but I think the stress here, it's a stronger command than a present imperative. Does that make sense? And the stronger command, in other words, the emphasis here is presenting yourself to God, 613. Got that? This should be our focus. This should be our emphasis. And as we grow, and as Christ works in us to bring us to maturity, this becomes more prominent. In other words, our involvement with what God has for us, then battling, not that we don't battle, but the old nature can be subdued. It can die. We never eliminate it. There's always a struggle. But maturity is a person that lives more consistently in the power of the Holy Spirit than he does in the power of the old nature, where there's no power there actually at all. So present yourself to God. And then if we, when we come to verse 14, it's a future active indicative. It's not an imperative grammatically, but it can be used in this imperatival sense 
Sin shall not have dominion over you. And I'm phrasing it more like an imperative. All right? So there's a little grammar lesson today. For you are, and he gives a reason, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, again, there's a couple of ways you can view law here. And I've given you a word study, and in the book of Romans... Paul seems to use that word in several different ways. In fact, I gave you nine possibilities of how the word law is used. Now, notice, what what do you notice, first of all, in the translators? It's not capitalized, okay? So it could be used in a very broad sense, or it could be used in a sense not relating to the Mosaic law per se, okay? And in this context, I think it is being used, and it could be capitalized because it's not clear here, but the New American Standard translators chose not to. But I think what it's contrasting here is law in the sense of a dispensation or a time frame. We're not under the time frame or dispensation of law. And I think this is going to be supported by what he's going to say later on as well, including chapter 7. For we're not under what Israel was under. Now, the Mosaic law regulated everything in that dispensation. The Mosaic law, capital law, was the covenant that regulated everything, every activity in the life of the Jewish persons. We're not under that covenant, and therefore we're not in that dispensation. That's the whole point of this whole passage. Jewish people did not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what he starts off with here. That is unique to the church age that is under Grace. Does that make sense? We're under grace. We're not under law. Maddie. I would just make clarification and say Israel didn't have the baptism of the Spirit. What did I say? You said Jewish people. Okay, Israel. Israel is a nation of Right. Under the covenant. Do you see that Jewish people in the book of Acts today? Right. Today. Today, yes. Yeah. Good clarification. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament does not or did not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is unique. On the day of Pentecost, that's why it was miraculous, so that God would confirm he's working a new work. That's why you might even say there are at least two other Pentecosts in the book of Acts. Because it had to be solidified in the thinking and the minds of the early disciples and apostles. Peter had to see that Cornelius had this baptism of the Holy Spirit just as Jewish people did on the day of Pentecost. And Peter also had to see that the Samaritans, the hated Samaritans, had this baptism of the Holy Spirit just as Jewish people did on the day of Pentecost. So we have these three experiences that were miraculous in the first century. So the early church would get the picture that anyone that trusts in Jesus Christ now has this baptism of the Holy Spirit that Paul describes here in the chapter. And there's external evidence of that that was visible to people in the first century so that they would be convinced that that inward, invisible reality had taken place in Samaritans and Gentiles and not just Jewish people. But this is unique. This is a work of grace. We might call the church age an era of grace as opposed to an era of law. You see that? And we'll support that as we get further in, but I think it's already introduced to us when he tells us about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's 6.14. So now we're looking at another paragraph beginning in verse 15. Maddie, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to um, kind of 
point out how verse 14 ties back in with his first verse. Because he's talking yes. about yes. You know, grace, how he's going back to that concept of grace. Now that he's explained, this is what grace looks like, yep. right? Yep, and he now, summarized it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And now he's like back. Okay, going back to the first point, we're going to go on. So... Very definitely. I think it all kind of hangs together. You might even say it's like an inclusio, right? Beginning with grace, and then he comes to the end of the paragraph in grace. And verse 15 gives us another paragraph, and I take that to the end, verse 23. And the emphasis there is the believer's sanctification. Because of what he says, the end product there, notice at the end of uh, verse 20, what is it, 20... Or 19, so now present, look at the end of it, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. So it's kind of wrapping up this concept of sanctification. And then again in verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, or slavery again, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Now, when we get there, we'll talk about that, but sanctification. So the believer's sanctification, that's kind of the end product of everything he's talking about here, the process of sanctification. Now, he's been dealing with progressive sanctification. In the introduction to this section, I distinguished between positional sanctification and progressive sanctification, and ultimate sanctification. Chapter 6 is dealing with progressive. In other words, that that works itself out in the believer. Verse 15, and in fact there's several parallels. I've got another slide here. It's very similar to verse 1 and 2. He's going to ask rhetorical questions. So he's going to raise the issue of law and grace in verse 15. And what does he say? What then? Kind of a general question. Okay, I've given you the doctrine. What then does this lead to? Where does this end? And he's going to lead us along the path of this idea of progressive sanctification. So everything he's talking about is relating to sanctification. That's how he ends the paragraph. So what then, in light of everything I've said in verses 1 through 14, in light of the encouragement to appropriate these truths, now he's going to go back and explain more detail. Maddie. Great. So uh, this section in 15 through 19 is like an illustration of the mm-hmm. right? Yes, and he's going to use the imagery of slavery. Yeah. And when we get there, one of the points I'm going to make is we are always under slavery. It's kind of an irony. Only in Christ are we free, but even in Christ, now we are, we have a new master. Well, Bob Dylan said it, right? You got to serve somebody. That's right. So there's a sense in which we are never free. And in reality, we don't want to be free, deep down, if we face reality. And yet, at the same time, only in Christ are we free. So it's kind of an ironic concept, biblical freedom. We'll get there. So what then, in light of everything Paul has said, what are some of the conclusions we can come to, and what what are the elaborations of what he said? How do they work themselves out? So we have some parallels. The structure we're going to see as we follow it through. 1 through 14, we're going to see some parallels. He's going to ask rhetorical questions. He's going to lay out another principle. Now it's related to the other principles he's already given us. Kind of an expanded principle. And then he's going to give an explanation. So verse 15 is the question or series of questions. Verse 16 is the principle. And then uh, 17 through the end is an explanation of that principle. Very similar to what we had in 1 through 14. Verses 1 and 2 are the question. And then he answers the question, verse 2, and then verses 3 through 14, you might say, or at least 10, you have an explanation. 
And then sandwich in the middle, you have an application or appropriation, you might say. And then that leads us to 15. So a lot of parallels here. One and two are rhetorical questions. And now for 15, another rhetorical question. Okay. And the first, second question, shall we sin because we are not under law? That goes right back to verse 14. Because we are no longer under a mosaic or a Jewish dispensation. We're no longer there, but under grace. And by the way, it's very similar to what he said at the beginning. (laughs) Except in verse 1, the question related to who we are in Christ. But now it's related to the law. And he's going to expand on the law as we move further. So he asks a rhetorical question, and obviously he gives the emphatic answer, much like he did in verse 2. Absolutely not. Or the way I sometimes put it, are you crazy? Are you insane to even think this? Kind of the thrust of what he's saying. In the most powerful way that he could express it, he says, may it never be. And now in verse 16, we have a new principle, and that's about as far as we want to get this morning, so let's expand it. He goes back, do you not know? Much like what he said, remember the parallels? This is another parallel. So the emphasis is knowing, as I've already said in verse 3, do you not know? Except here we have a different word. And then verse 6, knowing that certain things are true, Verse 9, knowing this, that this is reality. Now in verse 16, we have knowing again, but now it's oida. It's not ginosko. Oida is intuitive truth or self-evident truth, you might say. Truth that is obvious. In other words, do you not know this? Everyone should is kind of the implication. And if you don't, you're just totally off track. So he's already laid out a lot of doctrine, and now he goes and he's going to give an intuitive truth. And what is that intuitive truth? That when you present yourselves to someone as slaves, we're introduced to this idea that we serve a master. The issue is not whether we serve a master or not. The issue is what master do we serve? So we're always, in some sense, slaves. We're always, in some sense, dominated by something else. He's already expressed the idea that the unbeliever is dominated by sin that results in death. So sin and death dominates. There's no option. There's no choice. Now, the unbeliever may be unaware of it. The unbeliever feels free. The unbeliever thinks he's free. But in reality, he's a slave. And if you just think about it a little bit, The unbeliever is a slave to something, maybe to his ambitions. He's a workaholic, and he's always striving to reach that goal. He's a slave to ambition. In some cases, it's addiction as a result of a path that is ungodly, resulting in addictions. He's a slave now. So everything that he's doing is to serve that craving that drives him. He's a slave. In some way, it is always sin, even the positive like an ambition. That may be a good thing. People are driven because they are mastered by something. A lot of people are mastered by what other people think, particularly unbelievers. Now, we as believers can go back to all of these things, but the unbeliever has no choice. And what Paul is saying, there's a break here. We have another option. We have a new identity. That slavery has been broken. And now we have a new master. So we don't have to be enslaved to those things that we were enslaved before. So if you're a slave to what people think, you're a people pleaser. And everything that you do is motivated by what is this person going to think? Whether it be your wife or a friend or parents or whatever. We're in slavery. You can go down the list. Everything that the unbeliever does, he's enslaved in some way. He may not be fully conscious of it, but he's driven. That's what drives him is this master-slave relationship. So when you present yourselves to someone as slaves, that's the principle. That dominates you. 
If you're living in the old identity, you're dominated by those old patterns of slavery, whether it's ambition, whether it's money, whether it's materialism, whether it's people, whatever the case may be. First of all, present, the idea of presenting, that's the same word we already looked at last time, uh, paristemi, to present, put in the presence of, to offer oneself up like a sacrifice, same word in Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, if you're making yourself available to the old nature, that's the idea here, that's parallel to what we just looked at in verse 13, we have that in verse 16, and back to the word slavery, present yourself to someone as slaves, there's the imagery again, he's going to run through the whole passage, the imagery of slaves, the word doulos, I said there's five different words in the Greek language, one of them refers to a household slave or servant, in some cases they had some privilege and some freedom, in some of the parables of Jesus, he gave authority and lots of freedom to some of those household slaves. As he, as the, in the parable, the master went on a journey. Basically, that slave had authority over others. So there's different levels in the first century. We may not be so familiar with the, the concept, but if you just think historically, you can think of some of the same images. Here, doulas, is the lowest of all slaves. The most abject, the most servile term for a slave. That's what we have in this passage. Where you are under total domination. And there's only two options. Total domination by the old identity or the old self and or now this new identity. There's not a third option. Only two options. There's only two ways of living the Christian life. Slave imagery. So you are slaves. So if you present yourself as slaves for obedience, you are slaves. Use it again. Of the one whom you obey. That's the principle. Only two options. Jesus says, how many masters can you serve? Only two options. And that's what Paul is saying here. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. That's the principle. So now in the process of sanctification... There's only two options. The option of cooperating with the Holy Spirit to allow the process to work itself out in us or the option of going back to that old master-slave relationship that we were unaware of as unbelievers. Slavery of the old man. And he spells it out either of sin... Now, he spent a lot of time showing that in Christ, that has been broken. We died. It's as if we were on the cross with Christ. So we are dead to the old self, either to sin resulting in death. And how did we say death is used in Romans 5 and 6? In a comprehensive sense. He's not talking about ceasing of breathing. We're dead in our thinking. We're dead in our emotions. We're dead in our relationships. We're dead in our morality. We're spiritually dead. We're a broken relationship with God. That's deadness. So either sin resulting in this comprehensive death, sin and death, again, is parallel, 1 through 11, what I'm just explaining, and we have it again in verse 16, Or the option that only the believer has now, the only other option, we're still slaves, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Another term we've seen over and over throughout the book of Romans, not just 5 and 6 and onward. So what he's talking about here is living. This is not imputed righteousness in this context. Do you see that? What kind of righteousness is this? Progressive righteousness or experiential righteousness is another word. In other words, it's going to affect our living. It's going to result in actions. It's going to result in lifestyle. 
and righteousness is a right standing before God. In other words, the thing that God approves, the lifestyle that God desires, the things that God has specified in his scriptures. So there's only two options. We're a slave of something, and we have the option to not be a slave of things that lead to comprehensive death. Let's stop there. The parallel, we have righteousness throughout. In fact, righteousness throughout the book, particularly in verse 13, and now we have it in verse 16. And next time we'll begin in verse 17 and look at 18, and we're going to talk about this process of transformation. Okay? So he lays out the principle, and now he's going to explain. It's, it's part of the explanation of this new slavery. So we are slaves in a new sense that uh, this slavery gives us freedom. Would, as far as a new Probably not. Not with doulas. Yeah. Yeah, and there's the whole spectrum from servants. In fact, in some cases, some of those milder terms are translated servant. Or even minister. One of the the words for minister is one of the words that's related to this idea of slavery. David? Even Paul refers to himself as a servant. Yeah, and it's the same word, doulas. The servant that is bound in every way, that has no freedom whatsoever. Lowest of the low. Yep, lowest of the low. And that's what we have here. And that's who we are. That's part of our new identity in terms of possibilities. We're going to serve something. The issue is, what do we choose? Volition. What do we choose to serve? So, 1 through 10 deals with our intellect, our mind. What are we to focus on our new identity? Verse 11 deals with believing, you might say our heart. 12 through 14, our volition, and now he's working out the volition part. What do we choose? We're slaves of one or the other. There's only two options, no in-between. Closing thought, if you really think about it, the only positive Option is serving our Lord as slaves, as bondservants, and serving Him as Creator is an unbelievable privilege. Who wants to close? Cunning. I saw you wanted to pray. You serve you, our new master. You equip us, like the old master who makes everything from the I pray that we would go forth in our weeks, um, each of us individually, uh, submitting ourselves to you daily uh, for the call that you have upon our lives, each of our individual situations, and that we would rely on your equipping and go forth and put it into the promise of you. Amen.